Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Before we get started, let's talk about Pushnik. Pushnik is a subscription program available exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Members will get access to bonus content like extended versions of our Beastie Boys and Brian Eno episodes. You'll also get ad-free listening to many of your favorite podcasts like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, The Happiness Lab, and ours, Broken Record. You can try it for free for seven days. Sign up for Pushnik and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Mark Ronson's big break as a producer came from working with Amy Winehouse to find the perfect sound for her career-defining album, Back to Black. Since then, Ronson's gone on to win an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and seven Grammys, for producing chart-topping hits for artists like Lady Gaga, Adele, and Bruno Mars. Ronson's sound is often associated with danceable driving rhythm sections, which makes sense considering his background as a renowned DJ. Recently, Ronson's put his musical knowledge on display as the host of The Fader's new podcast, Uncovered. And this month, he'll start a multi-part documentary for Apple TV Plus that explores the evolution of music technology. In today's interview with Rick Rubin, We'll hear Mark talk about the day he met Amy Winehouse and how she might have confused him for Rick Rubin. Mark also talks about the night he fell in love with DJing, growing up with his stepdad and foreigner, and how being isolated from his studio during the pandemic caused him to think his days as a pop music producer might be over. This is Broken Record, 
Liner Notes for the Digital Age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Mark Ronson. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London. I was born in England, and I lived there until I was eight. And then my mother remarried. My stepdad, he was English, a musician, but he lived in New York, so we all moved to New York. I definitely consider myself a New Yorker. I mean, I've spent time going back and forth now between London and New York, and I've spent blocks of time in England, and I feel very connected to England, but I do feel like a New Yorker. Do you remember much of your life from eight years old down? I don't think I remembered life in London as in I was taking it in geographically because you're, you know, when you're a kid, it's just where you live. But I definitely have memories from, even though my real father is not, and I say real father, it sounds like a slight to my stepfather. I mean, they're both really important figures in my life. But my dad was really into music. He wasn't the musician. And I just remember them throwing a lot of parties and waking up in the middle of the night, like four years old, going down and just seeing like all these grown-ups in this room was, you know, waist high. And sort of oblivious to like the hubbub and the mess, I would just go towards the speaker of wherever the music was coming from. And I would just sit in front of the speaker and I would play air drums. I would mime the drums. And like, I have memories like that, a lot of formative memories about music. And then my dad did get me like a kid's drum kit because when I would wake up in the middle of the night and go jam in front of the speakers, somebody was, I mean, there was always like Nigel Olsen who played drums with Elton John or like Simon Kirk from Bad Company. Someone was always over like late night. And I think someone was like, you know, pointed and was like, hey, you should get your son a pair of drums. Like he's, you know, he looks like he's really into it. So I remember playing along with the drum kit to the radio. Describe your the household in England, like what was your room like? Describe the place. You know, when I think about it, it does come back. So I remember a bunk bed. I had meningitis when I was a young kid, which is quite heavy. I didn't have the, there's two, there's viral and there's something else. So I had the one that you don't die from, obviously. But um, I had to be taken to the hospital and have like a spinal tap. I remember being in my bedroom having I think like having to be held down and like, I mean, I don't have like the most pleasant memories. Also my house, childhood house growing up was a pretty turbulent house. My parents were, they were like a young couple. They had me quite young. I remember fights and slamming doors and a lot of yelling and tears. I, that's how, I mean, I hate to say it, it sounds like a downer and I love both of my parents, but that's how I remember growing up in London. Yeah. And did you have brothers and sisters? I had brothers and sisters. My mom and dad had three of us, me and two sisters who were twins. And then when we moved to New York, my mom remarried and had two more kids. My dad remarried and had three more in England. So I have a big family and then two stepbrothers. So there's 10 of us all together. Did you move to New York for based on your mom's relationship or did you move to New York and then your mom found the relationship? No, we moved based on the relationship. I see. We moved as she had, you know, fallen in love with my stepdad. They fell in love with each other. And he was like, come live with me in New York. I mean, that wasn't the easiest thing, I'm sure, because I know my dad didn't want us to leave. But, mm. you know, somehow we got to New York. And would you say your relationship with both of them was decent? With both my parents or both my dads? But let's say both your dads first. 
Yeah, definitely. My dad, like a lot of like English guys, like growing up in the 60s, like he was like a soul fanatic. Like he had 45s of stacks, Winder K Frog, like not just the, the kind of obvious things. And so, and I, I remember he loved like, he loved horns and like soul music. And I even remember when I was like really young, he like gave me the CD. He's like, I bought this. It was De La Soul, the first album, Three Feet High and Rising. It was like, I don't get it. Like, you know, he bought it because somebody who knew that he liked soul or groove music said, you should check this out. I remember he had Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Message, and he'd play that all the time. Like, I, so I got this, I think I got this great love of very rhythmic based music from him. Mm. And then my stepdad would let me, you know, fuck around with his equipment. He had a Kai little eight track recorders. And I mean, he even had like a Synclavier, which is, I'm sure you remember this crazy $200,000 like programmable sequencer that, yeah. I mean, he must have been laughing when he was just like, yeah, go teach yourself how to use that. But I could like very rote teach myself how to remake like Terrence Trent Darby's Wishing Well on it. So anyway, the fact that I got this love of this music from my dad and then my stepdad sort of fostered my basically like wanting to be around equipment, wanting to play around with it, do that stuff. So they were both really important in that. Did you ever go on tour with your dad? I did when I was six or seven. I mean, I guess Foreigner, that was Foreigner 4, you know, like Jukebox Hero and Urgent and Waiting for a Girl Like You. They were playing these massive places. And he took my mom and me and my two sisters on tour. And it was amazing. I mean, it was my first time going around America, going to like Texas and going to Six Flags and just like this shit, like for a kid. And the drum riser was probably like 12 feet tall, like, you know, these big kind of rock shows. And they would let me go backstage behind everybody and like crouch behind the drum riser and i would just play i knew the set so well i would mime what the drummer dennis elliott was doing i definitely like that's just certainly an ongoing theme for me was there ever a time that you imagined being a musician like being a performer musician i mean i played in school bands you know and in my high school band and so it's like this new york era of that we were like in the band sort of mixed racially there were two black musicians there was me and two of my friends and it was like the era of the black rock coalition of like 24 7 spies living color like we loved all those bands um and then i was super into the black crows we used to play like two black crows covers in our set too i didn't even know hard to handle was by otis redding and then there was like this hip-hop I was discovering hip hop. So we'd sort of had rappers come on stage. So anyway, this was my band that I played with. We'd open for the spin doctors and stuff at wetlands and play the bitter end. But I was the worst musician in the band. Like they get to other musicians could shred and I like had feel, but I was just like, I wasn't going to be slash. I wasn't going to be Vernon Reed. Then I got into DJing and I always was a fan of like liner notes. And I'd weirdly like read billboard when I was six. So there's things started to happen that I started to amass a bit of a toolkit that was like, okay, well, I'm not good enough at this one thing. I'm not really good enough at that thing. But if I amass this sort of like amalgam of things that I love and I'm interested in, and that's what led me to being a producer. Cool. What did you play in the band? I played rhythm guitar. But like the other guy had like the like Kramer, like the Kip Winger, like guitar and was like shredding and like, then it'd be like my time to solo in the set and just be like, like just playing like an average white band riff or something. But 
I did love it. I mean, I actually remember my best friend from high school talking to him when we were like in the, you know, 16 plotting your dreams. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to be like a guitarist in a, in a band and all these things. And Alex Kane, he's still one of my best friends. He goes, I, I just see you as more of like a behind the scenes type of guy. And at that moment, I was like, you know, I probably like hung up on him. I was like, fuck you, dude. Like, you don't know where I'm going. And he was like completely right, actually. <laughs> How old were you the first time you started going to clubs in New York? When I was 13 or 14, I loved like, uh, I just loved all these like English. I, the good thing is as well about going back to England once or twice a year to visit my dad, I would discover things like Blur and the Wonder Stuff and just EMF and just, you know, things that were just like really cool that was you know back when it would take six months for a band like that to get to america as you know now everything's so global and instantaneous so i would get really excited when these bands would come over to play in new york at venues like the marquee or the ritz but of course i was 12 13 years old my mother wouldn't let me go to these shows so i managed to get a job writing for this inter-school music paper because i could tell her that i was going to review the shows and she would let me she let me go. And, um, and I interned at Rolling Stone magazine in the summers when I was like 12, 13, and 14, maybe. So I'd occasionally get like a freebie tickets and go to shows. And I, I loved, I mean, I loved going to shows. It was like, I remember the marquee so well. I remember like different venues. What was the Rolling Stone office like when you were a kid? What did that feel like to go there? That was incredible. I mean, that just felt like, I mean, I'm sure it was even more relaxed. It wasn't like it was in the 70s, but more relaxed than it was now. And I was just this kid who was like, they'd just give me any job that could fit in, whether it was sometimes like manning the switchboard because you had to like answer the phone and like send people to different extensions. And I would answer the phone. I'm sure my voice for the first year or two like hadn't even broken yet. So I'd be like, hello. And then I would um, run around and it was back in the day when they compiled their own album chart by calling 30 mom and pop stores and doing a median average and then deciding what the number one record was so it would be my job to call and there were people there like david frick like legends sheila rogers anthony de curtis david wilde these really cool people that were just like thought i was, it was like kind of funny that i was just like this kid running around and they could tell how into it i was i realized how lucky i was and how lucky i was how they treated me all like you know absolutely what would you say was the first music that you felt like was your music as opposed to your parents' music? My parents were like quite, I can't remember if like my, my stepdad, even though it wasn't his music, like he was interested in like the stuff that I was into. But I definitely would say that early 90s hip hop in New York, things like Black Moon, Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth, like when I was 15, 16, when I discovered those things, that was really like my own. Because even the heavier rock stuff wasn't that much of a far cry from my stepdad and foreign and the music, you know, mm -hmm. he was shredding. So I would say that the New York hip hop scene, the stuff that I would hear on like Stretch Armstrong. Yeah. Would your friends in school have similar tastes, would you say? My two best friends in school, Alex Kane, who told me I was never going to be a guitar hero, and then my friend Daniel Sally, and he was, he was like the first one to have Eric B and Rakim paid in full. And then there were like three or four black students that I was friends with in the school that like if I they would kind of put me onto stuff, and then if I heard a song on the radio that I taped on a radio show and I didn't know what it was, I would bring it into school the next day and be like, 
hey, like Conrad, can you listen to this and tell me what song this is? And he'd be like, that's Nas halftime. Like you've never heard the song before. And then those, uh, Conrad, Michael and Jerry, who were the you know three black students in my class, they were in a musical talent show and they knew that I had this equipment at home, these samplers that were like, I barely knew how to use. And they were like, do you want to try and make us like a track for this talent show? It was like a judge by Reverend Al Sharpton. It was in Stuyvesant. I was like, cool. And I, my understanding of how the samplers worked was so rote that I had to make sure that the samples were the exact same tempo and hit play at the exact same time. I didn't know how to sync anything up. It was just like that. And then Michael Liao was like, you know, it's like what you're doing is very similar to DJing. Like, you know anything about DJing? I was like, no, what's that? And he's like, well, you're taking records and you're mixing, you're blending tempos at the same thing. And I think that was one of the first things that ever put the seed in my head of like DJing. Like, what's, what is that? And how old were you at that point in time? 16. And what was the first time that you, that you went to a club to check out DJs? Like where you were aware that there was a DJ controlling the music in the room? I remember it really well my friends would all go to these raves that were put on by NASA because it was all ages and you acid shrooms, ecstasy, you know, you'd be tripping and everyone go dance to techno. And then there was, you'd go and you'd like hook up in the chill out room. I keep hearing Ricky Powell in my head saying, all right, kids say heck no to techno. His like, you know, his <laughs> rap that he used to do before the beasties went on, which is That's so funny. Yeah. But I just couldn't get, with the te techno, I wasn't like snobby or something. It was just because it was fast and it was like, it was straight. And I would always end up in the chill out room where there'd be like an interesting DJ, like Dimitri from Delight or somebody like that. And there was this DJ named Ani that was, now I know him and his real name is Ani, A-N-I, but it was Ani, like O-N-E. Mm -hmm. And he was killing it. He was like cutting doubles of something. And I went and I was just so transfixed and probably because I was, you know, on some psychedelic drugs as well. And I was so captivated and I really like think that that was just like one of those moments where it's just like, oh, I want to do that now. Because like not only did I love the music that he was playing, but obviously like watching, you know, the hands and it was just so, it was so interesting. So yeah, so that was kind of it. When you went to the NASA parties as a kid, what were the venues? It was the shelter. It was that giant place down on Varick on, I think it was like 170 Varick next, really close to wetlands. So it was this really big giant warehouse and you would sort of like wait online. And I mean, it was crazy. The, the accessories that people would wear, it was like you would take a, a dog toy of like Bert and Ernie, is that the Sesame Street guys? And put it like on a on a necklace around like a shoestring around and then have like ski goggles. And then you would have the, like take your Pumas, like the Puma Clydes or like these classic shoes to like the guy that would put platform, like rubber platforms. It was like, but yeah, everybody looked like this kind of like freak. I mean, I guess it wasn't that far from when you watch, um, what's that HBO show that scares me so much because the kids are just getting so fucked up. And like, I'm like, a kid's really like that. But I'm like, oh shit, we were like that. It's funny, you're, as you're describing it, I never made the connection before, but it sounds like we could be talking about glam and glitter rock, you know, like, because it's definitely related, like the, the, while the look isn't the same. Yeah, platforms and yeah, yeah. And, and just looking like 
you wanted to know like you were really like marking who your tribe was yeah and it looked more almost like what you'd wear on stage as opposed to what you'd wear being an audience member yeah it was it was definitely like you were wearing stuff to draw attention to yourself for sure it was like peacocking cool what was your first dj gig it was at a bar on the upper east side I had my turntables for probably three weeks and there was a guy that I knew that threw parties where they let underage kids in on bars on the Upper East Side. There were places like that and the Upper West Side. And I just remember hassling him and calling him and I probably lied and said I've been DJing for three months as opposed to three weeks. And I had one crate of records, like about half a crate of hip hop and half a crate of like funk and soul. Had no idea what I was doing really. And I hustled him like into giving me this gig and I had to take my turntables, you know, in the back of a cab. It sounds like I'm exaggerating, but it was a snowstorm in New York, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure the money I paid on the cab was more than I got. And there were like 19 people that showed up. But I do remember playing Average White Band, Love Your Life, which is the sample for Check the Rhyme by Tribe Called Quest, which was like a big song at that time. And I remember like this guy coming up to me and being like, oh, that's cool. Like, how do you know about this music? And I just remember even when nobody was dancing, this clear floor, just this feeling of like, it wasn't so much the control, like from the Svengali thing of being like, I can control what everybody's listening to, but just this idea that if what I play could affect the mood of the room or if I played things in the right sequence or I could, you know, and I was really bad at that point. I could barely probably put two records together, like, and keep the tempo going. But I just, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. We'll be right back with more from Mark Ronson after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping 
lower scores, and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. We're back with more of Rick Rubin's conversation with Mark Ronson. Do you think of yourself primarily as a DJ or a producer, or is it both? I think I always wanted to make music, and then the DJing thing took off in a way I couldn't have really foreseen or imagined. The weird thing is that they're very separate, but they inform each other so so much. And sometimes not in a great way. Like back in the days when I was supporting myself by playing five, six nights a week, before I really made it as a producer and you're playing like other people's records and Neptune's records and Timbaland and like coming into the studio and trying to like find your own voice the next day when you're just clouded with like, you know, seeing everybody lose their mind to like, a, you know, a Neptune's track. You're, it's hard to find your own voice. So it's hard to really just like cut those ties of all those influences, but they, they really inform each other. I mean, I would definitely, probably now at this point call myself a producer but the dj i still dj and it's still what kind of got me here in some ways you know my first production gig i ever got was this girl nika costa and it was because her manager dominic trenier used to come hear me dj and i would play rufus and shaka khan epmd and then an acdc breakbeat and this thing and i mean i remember when i was djing this club life i don't know if you remember but the dj booth was right up against the stairs cramped it really wasn't a booth and you could see everybody coming down and it was such an amazing scene i would see you walk down with like chris rock and then damon dash and jay-z and there was puffy at one table and jay at the other and they were doing like i would go bad boy rockefeller bad boy rockefeller tune song for song and they'd be like cheering and laughing and like talking shit to each other like it was so wild to be there but because i would play these things that were like, you know, some of my heroes and very influential people were at, they would, Dominic Trenier came up and was like, I have signed this girl, Nika Costa. I don't know what her music should sound like, but it's supposed to feel like one of these DJ sets that you do. So, um, you know, so much of it is just hard to kind of extrapolate for me. In DJing, how much would you react to the room? Like, t- tell me about the, the mindset of DJing. How does the night start and how do you choose what's going to happen? Well, I mean, back in those days when I started and I'm kind of grateful for this, like you would play a six hour set sometimes, like you were booked from 10 to four in the morning, New York clubs. So you had to have this, you had to have like two hours of like classics and soul and disco that you would start the night with. Then you'd have your old school hip hop, which was like at that time, old school meant, you know, anything pre like, 92 classic slick rick epmd whatever it is then you would play your newest bangers of the night then you had to have like a solid reggae set and r&b and then take it out maybe with a little house music or some dance classics so you would go into this room this empty room and you would just watch it slowly fill up and i always loved the first hour because i could play records i really loved and it didn't really matter and that could be like outstanding by the gap band or something a little more obscure 
and just slowly build the night and you would just focus on one group of people because before camera phones and the smoking ban and all these things and VIP booths, everyone stayed on the floor. That's where you stayed. You couldn't find out. Someone texts you to tell you there's a better party across town or you wouldn't see it on social media. Like if it was a good night, people came to the club and stayed all night. So you would focus on like one group of maybe girls dancing and like you would, that was your barometer. Like if one of the crew dropped off to go to the bar or something, you're like, oh shit, I'm not killing it enough. Like gonna, and reacting to the crowd. And then if you played something like, you know, the, the, a break beat or something like that, that like made all like, the b-boys suddenly form a circle and they'd start breaking you were like kind of into it for a second but then you're like i gotta play something else though because now like this is turning into like wild style and i need like everybody dancing and it's like there were just so many like tells and signals and things that you would read and and most of the time you're also feeding off the crowd and i remember that i love to play things that were a little bit unexpected so obviously something like back in black by acdc feels like a breakbeat like it feels as hip-hop as anything at this point but they weren't really playing that in the clubs and i remember when the benjamins came out by puffy and biggie and then there was a, a rock remix so i was like if i play the benjamins and go straight to the rock remix on the downbeat of biggie's verse no one's gonna stop dancing because it's biggie and then right on the downbeat when biggie stops his verse i can drop acdc back in black and everyone's dancing and like doesn't realize they're still dancing to something that's unfamiliar like i love being able to do that. And then when Seven Nation Army came out and a couple songs that like were not hip hop, but like just felt very hip hop, I could get away with playing these that got very exciting. And I was like, okay. And there was, you know, DJ AM on the West Coast, who was incredible, the best of everybody. Me stretch, like trying to push the limits of what you could get, a, get away with in a hip hop club, essentially. How different are the club scenes around the world? In the beginning, the only place I really went was Japan, Tokyo, because Tokyo had such a, like a symbiotic relationship back and forth with New York, with music, street culture, groups, everything. So that was kind of amazing. And that was the first time going over there and people being really excited about you because you're from somewhere else. And then the Japanese crowds, are, it's such a, you know, they're really grateful that you've come there as well. So, you know, New York, I would... I was doing good and killing it, but like nobody's going to make a fuss over you in New York, especially if they're seeing you three times a, a week. So Japan was really great. And I remember when my first album came out, I had this song on there that was like this sort of like minor hip hop hit with Ghostface and Nate Dogg called Ui. And I went over to Japan where it was like big. So I'd been to Japan a couple of times, but this is me going over there now the first time with like a record that's popping. And I never got on the mic before because I always thought getting on the mic was like the provenance of like flex enough, big cat, these people with these great booming voices. I just had this like unspoken thing that like white people should not be on the mic, like whatever it was, it just, and it wasn't a thing. And I was DJing and I was doing my regular set and what I thought was killing it. And I could feel the crowd. There was this like unspoken tension and this hushed, like they weren't, losing their minds like other times that I'd gone there and I was like you know what like I have to establish a connection like as much as I hate it there's this wireless mic right here to my left and I'm gonna have to pick it up and say something to engage and make some kind of bond and acknowledge that there's this crowd here to see me or it's gonna stay in this weird zone and I did and I was like hey to like so awkwardly I'm sure Tokyo like just 
doing whatever I'd probably learned from like watching real rap DJs get on the mic. <laughs> and and from that moment, they just lost their shit. And it was amazing. They were just waiting for me to say like, thank you and be like, we're in this place together. And so I sort of learned after that, like, like any other place that I went, I didn't need to do that. And that felt very like, very foreign to me at first. London, I loved because it was so exciting coming back there, having grown up in England, but like until eight, but feeling like a total New Yorker and coming back. And I think the first time was Puffy brought me when he was like doing a, you know, some kind of promo tour and uh, getting to kill it in London was like really, really wonderful. And it felt like, and then as I started coming back to London more and more and rediscovering my roots there and going around record stores, then, and that's what led to me meeting Lily Allen and Amy Winehouse and these people. Like that was like another chapter. But at first I was just like, whoa, this is great. Like I'm back in London and this thing. And I, I was so fucking New York at that point. I wasn't really in my head, like feeling like I was a Londoner. Cool. Tell me about Amy. I never got to meet her. She was, I hate to sound corny, but she really changed my life. Like I was, I was not popping in industry parlance. And uh, she came to my studio in New York. And this is actually quite funny. This is literally what happened. And I came, Guy Moot, my friend who was at EMI Publishing was like, do you know Amy Winehouse? And I was like, yeah, I like that for her first record. She had this song in my bed produced by Salam Remy that he reused the made, made You Look beat. And I was like, yeah, she's, she seems cool. Like, he's like, she's in New York for a day meeting with a couple of people like, do you want to meet with her? And, uh, I was like, sure. So she comes to my studio in, you know, downtown Mercer Street. And uh, I met her at the door. And I was, she was like, yeah, I'm going up to see Mark Ronson. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I'm, I'm Mark. And she's like, cool, yeah. So uh, can you take me up to see him? And I was like, no, 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 I, I'm Mark Ronson. And she was like, oh, I thought you had a long beard or something. I think in her mind, maybe the fact that like she had heard my name for longer because maybe in England like she just assumed I was like somebody who'd like been around for a while but I had to, um, in my head I was always like does she think I'm Rick Rubin like I have no idea so we went up in the elevator and uh you know I'm sure I don't know how you do it but everybody has their own toolbox and I was just like what kind of record do you want to make like what do you what do you like what are you listening to and she played me a lot of girl group stuff in the 60s things like the shangri-las and like jukebox pop music and things i didn't really know that well except for like probably like movies like goodfellas you know like like the, it was so before funk and soul and disco and the shit that i played but i loved it i mean it was cut from the same cloth and i was like cool and she left and i was like i just have a feeling first of all we really hit it off and i loved and there was something very familiar and I suddenly felt very English and Jewish in North London. Like she reminded me of all those things. And there's a shared humor. Like she was definitely much sharper with the wit than I was. But but there was an instant rapport. And I just remember her leaving that evening and being like, I got to make something that like makes this girl like want to stay in New York for another day. Like I, I just like, I want to make music with her. And I was suddenly felt, it wasn't even pressure. I was just inspired. So I came up with the little like, piano and instrumental like just very bare bones track to back to black and i played it for her the next day when she came in and she dug it and then she stayed around but she was in a really together part of her life when i met her when we worked together i remember she hadn't been 
for a little while before that. And I even remember some of my English friends being like, oh, you're working on Amy Winehouse? Like, good luck with that one. Like, I heard she's been working on that record for three years already. And, you know, I think there was a long space between her two albums. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about because this girl comes in and she's fucking playing these incredible songs. She's sharp as a tack. She's hilarious. So that's why even when she told me the story about the song Rehab came about because we were walking around Soho one afternoon and she was like, yeah, yeah, I wasn't always like this. Like I was, you should have seen me. And basically she was like, you should have seen me a year ago. Like my family, they're all so worried about me and my manager. And like my dad came over and they tried to make me go to rehab. And I was like, no, no, no. And I remember thinking like, of course, if this was somebody who was in duress or seemed like not in a good way, I wouldn't have said like, that's hilarious. Let's go make a song. Because I'm looking at somebody who's like, so together and this is such a closed chapter of their life like you know what like i hate to do shit that's like gimmicky but that is like very hooky just the way you said that so like she was just she would like go back to the soho grand hotel where she was staying every night it was five blocks from my studio and like get on the treadmill for like an hour like and then go to bed like we were it was a lot of fun i mean we were really only in the studio six days probably that whole record so I wish it was longer because there would be more memories. But then we, you know, we were still friends and we hung after that. Would you describe that meeting an artist, getting the vibe, what they're into, they go away, you make something, play it for them. Is that, would you say, typical of your process as a producer? Well, the way that I like kind of came up was like you sort of had like a beat tape. So you go to A&R offices and you would play beats and instrumentals like and and that's kind of like what people that's what I the world that I knew. So when when I met Amy and she told me what she liked, I was like, oh, "I don't have anything pre-made that you will like." But I mean, it's always different because some people come and they just have their songs already. Some people have a couple songs, but then you the jam sometimes I don't write anything. Like I just there to arrange and feed you know our friend richard russell and you're friends with richard like mm -hmm. he says in his book he's like to him being a good producer is like a series of making the right decisions like it's so fucking meta and so like in the atmosphere of like what you can do on any given day that might make something good or help steer something to be better or or just know to get out of the way. It's it's very it's very different, but it just depends, I guess. It like depends on the artist. Yeah, that's why that's why I'm asking because I, you know, we technically do the same job, but I have no idea what that means and how you do it. You do versus what I do. It. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's impossible to know. It's such a it's such a particular thing that that. Yeah, and it's you know it's such a particular like you know when I came up like you quincy q-tip george martin uh, nigel godrich like i because i loved all these different things i had like a a wide array of people that i would like study and i you know i'd read things like well pharrell says like they don't stay in the studio past 9 p.m because like nothing good ever happened so like maybe i'll absorb some of that and then like you were so song focused i remember whenever i read something about you you'd be like maybe the songs aren't there yet or just like it was so much about the songs and i realized like i've also got into trouble being into going getting into projects because i have like i i well it doesn't matter they have like great songs yet but like they'll come or like we could bring them out and that isn't a given either so i think that it's just this like magic toolbox and everybody has their different things yeah would you say when you start 
on a project with an artist, you'll have an idea of where it's going to go, or is it pretty much open to see what's going to happen in the moment? And that's where it goes from there. I think that's what it is. I think it's just open to that first meeting. I mean, I think that I have, you know, sometimes when I'm working with like a, a band like that I've loved and grown up with, whether it's Ghostface or Duran Duran, like, of course you have an a little bit of an idea because you're like, you're already a fan. So you have this sixth sense of like, what do fans want to hear this person do? And then you just go like, what's this person's superpower? And a lot of the great artists have more than one superpower. And like, how do I just like amplify that to, you know, next level? But I think it's always, you know, when we were working at your place with Gaga at Shangala, I remember like, I had no idea what we were going to do. And I was like, I think she maybe thought even we we're going to do something a little more jazzy because everybody thinks, because I like love horns. Like I know a lot about jazz. I know nothing about jazz. <laughs> and she just came in and like, denim shorts and cowboy boots and like a hat and obviously like your studio is like one of the most idyllic places of all time so you do feel really like in this wonderful zone and it just felt like okay well let's make something that's sort of like you know organic or stripped back or like i you know whatever the reason so i i think that yeah i think i'm just always just like open to like what's the quincy says too is like you always need to leave room you need to leave space to let God in the room or whatever you believe that thing is. Like, you just have to be ready to go on like any kind of instinct. Do you still make tracks without having a particular artist in mind? You know, it's funny. I just kind of went back to that. I just, there's something, I think over lockdown, I learned Ableton. I was like, I'm finally going to teach myself Ableton because like every, I've been telling myself for eight years, every time I get on a flight to Japan, I'm like, this will be the time. I never, never done it. And it's getting to the point where like Diplo and people that I work with are like Kevin from Tame Impala and Ableton. They're like, they're like, really? You're going to make me fucking bounce these stems again so you can put this shit in Pro Tools? Like, can you just learn Ableton? So that got me back into a little bit into beat mode. And then I realized that what I was trying to do on Ableton was just recreate what I used to do on my MPC. So I'm like, man, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to be lazy. Let me just break the MPC out and start doing this thing. Cause I was trying to recreate feel and sound and it just wasn't doing it. So I got back into like MPC, like making beats and just like, I've been in some sessions recently since shit's kind of opened back up again. And I love getting there before the artist like four hours and just making like six instrumentals just so it's sort of like ready to go and like chopping drum breaks just so you know there's not that kind of dead moment where they're standing over you where you're like chopping a snare drum like i like the idea of just having a few things to get someone excited and inspired when they walk in the room are you ever surprised by how someone approaches vocally uh, a track that you've lived with for a little bit as an instrumental yeah, definitely. I mean, I love, that's the best thing when you're just so surprised and you're like, oh my God, I never would have thought of that. I mean, especially the, probably more with melodies and rap stuff because there's probably more room to like experiment. But I also remember like, I worked on, on like a third record. I had this song with Q-Tip called Bang, Bang, Bang. And I remember him coming in because I was playing him a bunch of other beats. And by accident, I started this one that was like a ready a song for somebody else. He goes... He wasn't that into the shit I was playing. He's like, what's that one? I was like, oh, that was this other thing. He goes, roll that back. And watching like Q-Tip, like in his process, which was just like 
get out the room. I'm going to run Pro Tools. I'm going to record this shit, put his headphones on, and just records first doing cadences. And then starts to fill in the words. And then like this whole shit is like coming to life. And obviously has such a magic voice in this familiar thing that's like, you know, I grew up with. But um, occasionally someone will just send you something back done and that's great too. But when you get to see this little people's processes and stuff, it's like, oh shit, that's how they do that. Yeah, it's so cool. Is it is it very different from artist to artist, would you say? I feel like the it's pretty like if someone likes something and you play something and it gets them in the first like five or six seconds, which is really the only time if you don't get them in the first five or six seconds, it's probably not going to happen. It's usually like the thing like, oh, shit, let me get some headphones. And then it's like plug the mic, run the track back. And it's like just freestyling like the first melodies and the things that come out like that's. That's the most common process that I've seen. But, you know, then there's somebody like Bruno who's just like ultimate like song crafter and just like nothing goes down until like the best thing is written in his brain, you know? Do you remember the very first time you were ever in a recording studio? I think I do. I think it was probably with my stepdad. I remember being in one of those studios in Midtown in New York that's not there anymore, like Right Track or something. And I remember loving it. I remember... I mean, other than my stepdad's home studio, which had like a little A-track and some stuff and that feeling very homely, there was something about like studios are just so warm and it's wood everywhere. And if it's not wood, it's like a cushiony paneling and there's lights and they're all cool and it looks like some retro futuristic spaceship. And I just remember like, you know, the black leather couch that's like in every kind of like stock, like New York studio at that time, like that just felt so good to me that was like very like warm and fuzzy we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more from rick rubin and mark ronson as listeners to this show you probably consider yourself pretty smart but how smart is your wallet when you're looking to upgrade your wallet it's time to turn to nerd wallet their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. 
starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Mark Ronson. Do you Shazam? I do. I Shazam quite a lot, actually. I'm sure I Shazam something today. It's this greatest invention ever. It's really, it really is great. You know, when I first got it, it was always like if I was in a record store, like HMV, some big record shop in England, and like if a song was so bad, I had to know what it was. So like oh, in the beginning, my thing was really like, like I would have been horrified if anybody had ever looked through my thing. and be like, wait, you like that? I'm not going to call anyone out. But like the other day I was in a taxi cab in England and I had never, and there's a song on it. It's got like this killing rhythm section, but it's like, sounds like a psychedelic 60s song. Like one of those songs that's on nuggets and it's right into the sun by Lou Reed. Like I had no idea Lou wow. Reed had made like a whole record with like this killer rhythm section. Like I, I just, I love it. I just, Shazam is just so great. Changed our lives. <laughs> yeah. How often do you hear something that comes out new that you love? Like pretty often. I mean, I feel a little bit out of touch because that the way that I would stay in touch with new music before was from DJing. And I would have to because I'd want to like play new shit in my set and not look like I was kind of falling behind the times. But I do think there's been a few sea changes in music that have just really got no like to things that I don't understand as much anymore. Like I realized like the vitality and why things in new hip hop and new pop music are exciting, but I might not connect with them in the same way. And I think I used to connect with them because you'd go see it in the club. And if you didn't quite get a record, then when you saw everybody lose their fucking shit to Sheck West, you're like, oh fuck, this record's a monster. Like, so I'm I, I trying to think of the last, there's still things that come out all the time that I that I love. And I, I always know like that feeling that there's like a pang of jealousy the second, like the first second I hear it, like, oh man, this is so good. I wish I did that. Or, or even like, I don't know how to do that, but this thing that I still love that feeling. I just, maybe I'm just a little bit more out of touch recently. When you would hear something new and decide to put it into a set, how often were your instincts about how the reaction would be if it was something less known, something maybe even unknown. Yeah, I think if you were good, it was like you knew where to sandwich it to just make sure it was like a Trojan horse. You know, if I can dress it up and fit it between these two records and just and have something ready. I think I was probably so in sync with my crowds and the crowds that I was playing for, even though they would change every night, that I had a good feeling of like what would work. And, you know, every now and then it just doesn't work. But um, most of the time it was... It was great. And 
how often would you play something from a different genre than was expected beyond back in black i mean i always hated the term mashup because djs have been doing blends forever and it was just like it was like a very reductive and slightly gimmicky thing but i mean it was also kind of exciting when it first happened and i would take records that i love like blur song two and i was like i can't just throw on blur song two but if i throw biggie nasty boy over the top of it the acapella then everyone's kind of dancing and we can see where we go from there and then you know every now and then you know some of the clubs i was playing in there were like these you know pretty like high-end powerful like drug dealers that were coming in to like spend two grand and have a good time and pop champagne and look like you know ballers and so like occasionally i remember playing like a, one of those rock records in the middle of the night and the guy just like leaning over the booth because at club cheetah the booth was behind the uh there was a a booth right next to the dj with this guy just leaning over and just being like what the fuck are you playing white boy like very very seriously to me so like i think that most of the times it, it got over and i think that new york crowds are quite open like regardless of genre but the reason that i sort of made my record version, which was like these covers of songs by the Smiths and Radiohead and the Jam and like the Zootons and these rock bands was because I wanted to play those songs and I was getting a little burnt. I'd been playing hip hop, R&B and dancehall for about 10 years in clubs. And I was just like, I couldn't quite play just by Radiohead in a club. And I couldn't play Stop Me If You Think That You Heard This One Before by The Smiths. Like that was just going a little too far. There were cool rock and roll scenes like Justine D and The Misshapes happening in New York just about that time, but that wasn't me. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make covers of these songs that I love and redo them in arrangements that I can kind of like get over with my crowd. And it was really just like, I just made them to just play. Like I didn't ever think that they would come out. I didn't really, it wasn't even enough. And it thought in my head, I was just like, this is for my crowds and this is something I can work on. This will be fun. And I the Radiohead cover that I did started to get a lot of play by Zane Lowe and Giles Peterson on Radio 1 in, in England. And that's what got me signed to Columbia because I'd been dropped by Elektra after my first record came out and sold like 80 copies. And uh, suddenly I was sitting on this album of covers and this one that's already on the radio. And so that kind of weird backfiring of the DJ set then inspired this other creative outlet, which was, you know, I guess I didn't, never thought about it in those terms, but it's interesting. So your career as an artist really was an offshoot of the DJing for, for real, like it really was. Yeah, like I was starting to produce records and I did the Sneaker Costa record, but I never thought, I never had any designs. There was no ego thing. Like I want to be the artist. I want to be in front. But there was this era of like, although I wasn't as like, didn't have the same pedigree as like super hip hop, like on the radio, like the level of DJ Clue or Flex or stuff. This was this era that everybody was getting a deal to make a mixtape album. And Sylvia Rohn and Josh Deutsch were like, I was the guy DJing like the kind of clubs that were like not as packed and but still had this cool thing it was its own downtown scene and so i got this deal and uh i was like cool i'll make a dj mixtape but with original music on it but um that except for that minor like ghostface nate dog record really did nothing and then the the weird backwards way of going about having this radio head and these covers records that led to me becoming 
a sort of accidental artist, like especially in the UK where that album, you know, was especially popular, was was very strange. But I've always thought about it. Like, I don't really care if my name is in the artist slot, the producer slot. Like, I don't feel any different or any more proud or less proud of the record. It's just, I think on my artist records, I get to do things that don't really have a place on anybody's record. Like, I was working with Amy on Back to Black while I was making Version, and I just said, hey, I'm making this covers record. Is there a song that you like? And she played me the song Valerie by the Zootons. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Let's do that. Like, I think that she wouldn't have made a cover of Valerie for her own record. It wouldn't have crossed her mind. But there's this fun thing that happens when people are a little more free. They're a little less precious, even, you know, like it's on your record. Fuck it. Yeah, let's do something for fun. For sure. Um, so that's kind of the only thing that that serves. Would you say your relationship to music has changed over the course of your life? Yes. If somebody like was like, okay, would you consider yourself more of a fan of music or somebody who actually creates music? I really wouldn't know how to answer that question. I still don't. I still get as excited. And if I had to, it's a really silly question because there's no world where that would happen. But if I had to choose between one or the other, being a fan and a listener or a creator, it would be very hard to imagine. I think I'm more patient certainly in the studio as well like i have less like ego running the show and i love occasionally being wrong like even if your pride hurts for like a second when somebody has a great idea and they kind of win the argument you're like oh yeah this song is now better for that my relationship to music like though it's still i went through a period over lockdown and i didn't really have a studio to go to and i was making stuff in ableton and Although I was excited about learning that thing, it's not quite, I am a visceral person. I like having like my like keyboard and the drum machine and this thing. And my music was just suffering because of it. And it was getting kind of shitty. And I was suddenly starting to think like, okay, I'm 45. Like I'm already at the tail end of fringe of like what would be like an acceptable age for someone trying to make music for like young people or pop music or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I know there's yourself, there's Quincy, there's people that, you know, definitely who've broken the the mold there but I was just starting to like really doubt my confidence and I was thinking like maybe I'm phasing out of music like maybe that's it maybe I'm do, gonna do some more interesting like educational stuff with music and maybe I'll whatever it is this Apple series I was working on with our friend Morgan Neville like just a documentary maybe that's my thing now and I think some of it was like a little bit of cowardice because I was like okay well if I don't try I don't put myself up there, my head above the parapet. Nobody can really fuck with me and tell me that I fell off. And uh, and then I got back in a studio for the first time like two months ago. And I just like had my shit around me. And I started, I was like, oh my God, I love this. Like this is, whether I make successful records or not, that's going to be determined by somebody else. But this is my favorite shit to do. How could I kid myself? Like this is still my thing where I feel alive and like I can look up and oh shit four hours has just gone by you know so I'm very grateful I mean I music has been like my fucking compass north star my anchor through life like it's only now that probably through therapy work whatever you want to call it that I've made time for other things in my life and I understand that they're important but um music is still this it's my best friend yeah amazing we we are blessed to be able to spend our lives with music it's like that's what we do it's yeah so lucky that that's our we do it for fun and we do it for work and it's all the same you know yeah amazing 
Tell me about the project with Morgan. So when Apple started their TV division, Kim Rosenfeld, who was running like the nonfiction stuff, came to me and he had seen a TED talk that I'd done about sampling and he liked it. And he was like, can we do something that's like that, but like expanded about music because it's sort of, it teaches people who don't know anything about sampling and probably didn't care or think that they cared about it. Like, oh, that's why my, that song I love is like that. And also do it properly. Hopefully it comes off in a way that like people who do know the shit are also interested and you're not talking down to anybody. So he put me with Morgan Neville, which was obviously like on my first time at the rodeo being paired with this guy who's made some of my fucking favorite documentaries and incredible and knows so much about music as well. We just dreamed up this show and we figured, you know, there were a hundred ways we could have done it, but what we decided, because it was going to be six episodes, was to break it up into different technologies that have changed how, you know, modern pop music and hip hop have, have really evolved. So we broke it up into reverb, distortion, synthesizers, drum machine, sampling, and auto-tune. The, the ongoing theme of the, of the show, of all these technologies, it's, is when they first came out, people really didn't like them or they were afraid of it or somebody thought that this was going to ruin music. And then somebody uses it kind of in the wrong way like Prince detuning the snare on the lindrum. So instead of sounding like a real lindrum, it sounded like douche. And it was like, someone was like, what the fuck is that? Like all these things that were like not supposed to be done, then suddenly someone geniusly does it in the right way. And, and then it's wonderful. And then it gets kind of accepted and co-opted by everybody. And then things that really came about that were really lovely, like I guess it it ends up like it's really fun when it's about the technology, but then it, it really is like nice and gets very humane when it starts to be about the story. Like as soon as beautiful, creative people start talking, you're like, of course you're going to go somewhere wonderful. That sounds great. I look forward to watching that. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an honor and it's a nice conversation. Thanks to Mark Ronson for walking us through his journey from becoming a DJ to pop music producer. To hear his latest album, Late Night Feelings, and our favorite Mark Ronson produced tracks, head to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. We can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. 
connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.